Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Today, in a non-visual medium... We've got a lot of visual things to discuss. Close your eyes, boys and girls, and we're going to take you to an imaginary place, painting a picture. That's right, painting a picture of costumes and makeup for Rick and Nick Talk Flicks today. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm sounding like Mr. Rogers, but Dave Brooks, I suppose. (laughs) Mr. Rogers, who knew? Let's take off our shoes together, boys and girls. He didn't actually take off his shoes in case you were wondering, although, oh wait, never mind. So much for that. Anyway, welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. I would recommend you not take your shoes off when you go and watch a movie at the Bemidji Theater. Um, They are reopened. They are reopened on certain days, but you can go and check out movies there at the Bemidji Theater, what's in theaters right now, you can check that out on their website, um, and they'll keep you informed and updated on what that's looking like as far as the schedule. If you are still not really feeling like you you want to go to the movies at this time, keep on supporting them through concessions. That's a major, major way to be able to support movie theaters um, and as far as their revenue is through the concession stand, and you can continue to support that even if you're not coming to watch a, a movie itself. It's the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2. I was just passing there the the other day, Dave, uh, during a weekend, and really enjoyed seeing how many cars were there. It was it was good to see that there was some good support uh, out there on a weekend. Again, that's that's when they're really open right now and where a lot of the business is going right now. So it was good to see some good support out there. So those that are tentative about going, maybe a weekday, maybe a matinee, uh, when things are a little less crowded. I've got one shot in my arm, so I'm almost there, but... Uh, at some point, I might be making my way back. So, But again, it's not done yet. Be cautious. Be safe. Keep those masks on. Obviously, I can't wear mine right now because we're recording, but right. Uh, it's right there. I know that's one of the biggest things that you are most looking forward to is is getting back to the theater. So with getting the vaccine right now, I, I'm sure that's in the back of your mind of, hey, I'm getting pretty close to being in a spot where I'd feel a little bit more okay going to the theater. Yeah, but I'm certainly not, for a while, going to be going to opening night for anything. You know, I'm going to find, what is the least crowded showing generally that you guys have? Well, the 3 a.m. is pretty empty. That might be when I go to the movies. But uh, we'll get there. We're going to turn that corner. We're going to get there. Yep. Yep. Working our way toward that. So, And working our way, hopefully, towards some more tentpole films being out there. It's been a little bit more under-the-radar type of stuff uh, to this point um, that's been back in theaters, but looking forward to some of the bigger stuff being out there, hopefully as the year progresses. At least that's the way that the calendar looks. Uh, You know, between Ghostbusters and Top Gun Maverick and a couple of... A lot of them are ones from my youth that have got some other... Call it a reboot almost coming up, distant sequel coming up, that I think I'm looking the most forward to. Revisiting an old friend, so to speak. That's right, yeah. And then a few, whether it's franchise-type stuff like You Know Me, I'm looking forward to the James Bond movie. When yeah, that too. finally comes out, it has been kickback I don't know how many times now uh, since last year, but I am most especially looking forward to that coming out. So well, Coming out in the fall, so I think, and at least I in hope. my case, I'll have my second shot here before summertime, so uh, going to see some summer blockbuster movies. Maybe I'll wait a couple weeks in and go check them out on a matinee or something quiet. But I'll be there, I think. Okay. Very good. So speaking of you know coming to the box office, you know, things are real, real slow right now. But coming out now, King Kong, Godzilla, fighting out of the blue corner. This will be It's getting decent reviews. That would be a great name for the movie, don't you think? Kong versus Zilla out of the blue corner. <laughs> if we're going to fo- solely focus on this as a boxing movie, yeah. Uh, I... 
I don't know, these these monster versus monster movies, it makes me think a little bit of Alien versus Predator. Um, just Alien versus Predator redux with huge monsters taking on each other with Godzilla and King Kong. Just, I don't know, laying waste to everything. Like, what what ends up becoming the point at the end of all of that is, is kind of what I look for. But from a visual standpoint, from a visual standpoint, you get the spectacular nature of, of that, I suppose. But I always think of what actually is the point that we are working toward here. Is there is one, there one that we should be rooting for? Are they being pitted against each other? Is there a third monster involved that these two are going to team up and fight against? Like, what does this end up becoming all about? You know, there's this is not the first King Kong versus Godzilla movie. There's another one from back in the day, and there were two versions of it, or at least two endings to it. In the American audiences, King Kong won. In the Japanese version, Godzilla won. It just depended on what you saw. Yeah. Because, you know, you had their home favorites, so to speak. I read something not long ago, so what's the point of having these things? In some of the Godzilla movies, Godzilla is almost the anti-hero. He's somebody you kind of cheer for as a necessity against some other bigger calamity, and only Godzilla or only King Kong can do it. Uh, and I read one that there's a couple of different versions. There's the sympathetic giant monster, whether that's Kong or Godzilla. And then there's the one that most people, apparently, according to what I read, support the most. And that's where there is nothing to love about it. It is an unholy monster, wing-laced almost as punishment to everything else. You know, the original Godzilla, he was awakened because of the nuclear fallout. And now he's going to mm-hmm. rain terror all over Tokyo or wherever the movie is set. And there, there is no reasoning. He's not an anti-hero. He is to be feared by all man and beast alike. We've got to put him down. And that's a cor- And I think that's what I would go for. You know, you get some giant, giant monster like that. You want to see him lay waste to everything in his path. Well, the original King Kong story, again, along somewhat similar lines, comes from misguided thoughts from humankind as far as looking for entertainment, looking for some filming, then looking for the eighth wonder of the world, the entertainment value. And then there are a few people in on the ground floor who understand that Kong, I forget the name of the woman who's... who. who, Ray. There we go. Who gets captured by Kong and kind of gets to know Kong up close and personal and realizes this is a thinking, feeling creature here a little bit. And Kong is actually by the end of the the whole thing, holding a mirror up to society a little bit, although he's doing so in very animal-type tendencies with carrying Faye off into this this very uh, tall building and and putting her in harm's way, although he ends up kind of taking her out of harm's way by the end of it. He just ends up getting kind of scared off into that situation, but ends up sort of revealing the heart of man a little bit. In a giant way, it's a giant, bizarre love story in yes. a lot of ways. Giant, bizarre love story. You feel that a little more in the 1979, is that when they made it remake with Jessica Lange and Jeff Bridges? Even more so in the Naomi Watts and Peter Jackson remake, uh, Andy Sierkis. So they've done Kong, you know, the original, so to speak, three times now. I'm sure there'll be another one. But, you know, it's also, I think... Part of was it is it going to be a sympathetic whether it's love story or whether it's an economical or ecological you know reckoning, or is it a force of nature like a tornado that has no love or hate for anything? It just does what it does, and that is destroy. And King Kong is a little. Well, that's more, alien. Well, that, yeah, that'd be alien definitely. Or are we talking about something that is just a force of nature, and this thing is unleashed from whatever reason, and now it's just going to lay rampage like like Godzilla would, where it, you're going to reap the whirlwind of which you have brought? You know, there's no love here. There's no. There's nothing to cheer for unless you like watching Jason hack through the counselors. This is basically that on a much larger scale. A monster horror is what you're saying. And what a good segue that would make into today's topic, because in order to make Godzilla and King Kong work, you need to be able to see them, and even better yet, you need to believe that what you're seeing is real. And this kind of does a good bridging of the gap between wardrobe and makeup, all in one suit, call it that. A good idea for today might be to keep a computer around, maybe you are listening on your computer, but... 
keep a computer around and Google some of these costumes and makeup ideas that, that we throw out there today because the visual of these things is is best seen. I mean, we can certainly try to describe and we can talk about ones that come to mind today, but it might be kind of fun to play along with us as we talk about them by looking up some of these things as we discuss them. But I told you this, Dave, when we were getting ready for this episode today that I think costume and makeup is extremely underrated. And it, it, that seems kind of crazy to say because we we see those things very clearly within the movies that we watch. But what I mean by that is I, I think they are they are more or less expected to a certain point. Like there there's the initial shock factor of seeing Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour. But over time, you just kind of get used to it, more or less. How does that happen? It happens through painstaking processes to prepare a person to be in a role such as that. You know, we get used to seeing Zoe Saldana as uh, as Gamora in, um, in Guardians of the, Guardians Galaxy. Of the Galaxy and it's the morning, Avengers. I know. And we get used to seeing her with green skin. We get used to seeing her with all these details. Um, or Mads Mikkelsen in Doctor Strange with the with, with the stuff that they did around his eyes and and all that went into to making all of that happen too. We get used to seeing that by a certain point in the movie that we kind of forget there was a lot of work that went into actually getting this ready. And you know this as well as anybody being a Star Trek fan and all the people who had to go through the process of becoming a Klingon. Or any other alien. Everyone shows yeah. up, they get you know a light powdering, and they put their outfit on, and they go to the set. Not Michael Dorn. You know, he's got to sit in that chair and get giant cranial ridges glued to his face hours before anybody's even probably gotten out of bed. Yep. And he might only be in the background, you know, for the today's shot. You know, that's that's tougher. Leonard Nimoy had an easier job with the ears. But what we're really talking about is the practical in-camera effects. You know, nowadays there are some things that happen with CGI that almost we become so, like you were saying, how come it is such in the background? Oh, they did it with CGI. And then sometimes you're amazed to find out how much of that was not, was shot in camera is what the term is. That's right. Where the sh- camera shot what was actually on set and there's no trickery or gimmickry or any of that other than what is physically there. And sometimes, especially in movies nowadays, you're just completely in, in awe. And when you go back far enough where CGI just kind of wasn't really a thing. And when it did happen, it was very clear to tell where the CGI was. And then you see these other things that are just marvelous. And some of the names, you got to shout out to some of the names, the Rick Bakers of the makeup world, um, the Stan Winstons of the makeup world. Tom Savini, got to give him a special shout out, who just recently got hit by a car, who was all banged up himself. Looks like he's a victim of his own makeup job, uh, hopefully making a comeback. Uh, the Michael Westmores. Uh, and then you talk about and the whole Westmore family, actually. Then you start talking about the wardrobe. A lot of times it's easy just to kind of forget about it. You're excited when you hear about the name that's going to be a part of a project to play a character, but they need to look the part. You know, imagine you only really realize how the makeup affects you if maybe it's done poorly because they're wearing that, really. If you expect them to show up and dress and look what you'd expect them to look and dress like, and so when they do, you almost don't. Think about it. You know, wonderful pants you chose today, Hoove. But I would expect you to wear good pants. It's when you screw it up <laughs> that you kind of notice. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it just kind of goes by the wayside, but you don't realize the work and the intricacy that goes into it. Um, and sometimes it's about as basic as it gets. I remember one story when they did The Untouchables. Robert uh, Robert De Niro, who played Capone in that movie, he wanted to wear what Capone had actually worn at the time, which were you know custom-made silk underwear. Not that you were ever going to see it, but that's what he wanted. In another movie, Goodfellas, he had to play with the pretend money at the, at the table. He didn't like the feel of the money that was pretend money as compared to, because money is actually cotton, it's not paper. He didn't like the feel. Well, it just so happened somebody on the set who makes a lot of money had a lot of cash in his pocket, and they used that. And so it didn't really matter 
But to some people, it matters a great, great deal. The kind of things that you wouldn't notice, silk underwear, actual cash rather than pretend money, it does make a difference to those that appreciate that kind of a difference, if you know what I mean. When All you have to do is do a little bit of, of Google searching, and it's amazing what comes up as far as, you know, even just makeup, just focusing specifically in on makeup. It's amazing what comes up when you, when you look at that. And sometimes makeup and costume almost become interchangeable. Um, for instance, how about Jim Carrey and How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Oh, I mean, yeah. he's wearing that suit around that, or that, that outfit around that, that he's got on and the facial stuff with it all day. I mean, it was, it was a complete all-day process when they were going through filming for that where he's got that on. At all times, you have to become immersed within something like that. Heath Ledger's Joker, same kind of thing. You know, you're wearing, speaking of important makeup, I mean, you've got all that makeup that you've got on there and some of the facial stuff, too, to, to show the scars. You're, you're dealing with that all day, your hair being like that all day, and you have to be in character all day. What you wear sometimes is is a it, it works hand in hand with the fact that you have to be immersed in your character. Lon Chaney, who is one of the greats, I mean, he goes back to the silent era. So when you watch that black and white silent Phantom of the Opera, that's Lon Chaney. And this was a guy that was an actor, but he was also his own makeup technician. And he would just kind of fool around and mess around and see what he could get away with and what he could do. And then he would implement it, but it would contort his face. I mean, he might use... You know, like you see the funny comedy bits where somebody will take some scotch tape and they'll use it to wrap around their face and pull their nose up weird and whatever. Well, he would more or less do exactly that, but to make himself look horrific. And then he would find a way to make it work and look believable. And you don't get to just take makeup off in between shots. It's like you said, it's all day. And not only that, you have to get a performance through that. And so not only are you talking about a level of discomfort, maybe even pain in some cases. A lot of times when you put in special contact lenses to make your eyes look just bizarre, some of those are difficult to wear and they're painful and you can only have them in or a certain other appliance for so long before you need to take it out. And the difference that it can make is huge and you have to be able to get a performance through it. Latex on your face, it's pliable and it's movable to a point. But you still have to furrow your brow and smile or make whatever facial gestures that you normally would. But you have to learn how to exaggerate that. So you don't just smile a little bit. You almost go maniacal because it has to reach through the latex and through the costume. It might look more normal. But it's it's the performance and the nuance of the person that is wearing the makeup. And some are better at it than others. And some look like they've had too much Botox or suffered a stroke or something and their face just doesn't move. They look great. But they don't look alive. And that's another big part of it. So there's a lot of symbiotic work here at play. You've got to have an inner work between who's applying the makeup and knowing how a face needs to work and an actor who knows how to work through the makeup and to make it work. What do you think some of the the game-changing movies were when it comes to... Let's let's talk specifically makeup and, and some of that element of it. Because costume... Costume has always been key. It's always been very important um, with with putting movies together, even going back to the silent era, because I mean they were they were still making some very lavish productions then with with some really lavish costumes. When do you think, Dave, that really close attention to to makeup as well as stretching the limits on what could be done with it started to become more more prominent in movies? I got to think a lot of that comes with sci-fi because otherwise you're just looking like a person. Maybe you look beat up. Maybe you look, you know, altered in some way, but you generally look like a human. When science fiction really started to go and there was such a thing as a makeup budget, I'll give you an example. Uh, We're probably going to touch base with Star Trek every so often because I'm a fan. So let's talk Klingons here. So Star Trek started in 1966. The Klingons basically had dark grease paint on their face and a goatee. And that's all it was, was just face paint to make them look darker and facial hair. That's And aggressive eyebrows. That's it. Then they did, 10 years later, they did the first movie, and they actually had a budget for one. 
makeup effects had come a long way, and so you see a completely different version of the Klingons where now they've got facial appliances on their head. They've got what they like to refer to as cranial ridges, this kind of almost ex- exoskeleton kind of look. They still had the darker face. They still had, you know, generally facial hair. But as the Klingons have evolved over time, so has the makeup. And a lot of it's just because of what they can do. They never really settled on this is what a Klingon looks like. There's a basic thumbprint, but now they can really expand on that. So I think when science fiction came in and people started working with things like that and really moving forward with it and getting better and better and better, I don't know if there's any one. You could certainly talk about, say, Planet of the Apes, and I mean the original Charlton Heston one. They looked monkey-like, and that was the goal, but you could work through. That's one of the ones that came to mind for me. Yeah, by the way, um, your guy Christopher Lloyd was one of those first people among the quote-unquote Klingons who who showed some of those new facial features. Movie-wise, yeah. Yep, but... Planet of the Apes was what came to mind for me, and I I guess in some respects, like you said, sci-fi really started to open up new doors uh, as far as what could you do with makeup um, as part of the costume to to really change things up a little bit. Like, I don't know, even... Even something like the day the Earth stood still, I mean, you've got you. It, that's more so costume with with what they had in there with that robotic like character there. Um, otherwise, it was it was people who looked like people, although they weren't necessarily people. Um, but yeah, sci-fi really did start to to open up the realm of possibility. Yeah, and Planet of the Apes was was just a groundbreaker as far as doing different things with costume really extensive things with costume to create a world of apes who have who have all of this stuff you know Roddy McDowell wearing all of these these different like you said appliances and and different things that they included to make them look different and be able to fit their their character too and science fiction deserves a big nod for this but not without its own level is horror in even horror comedy, an American werewolf in London, I think if you're really going to talk about a whoa, an eye-opener, that's one of them. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we're not going into too much for spoilers this episode, of course, but obviously somebody transforms into a werewolf in a werewolf movie. But not only the way that it was shown was that it was brightly lit. A lot of times back in the day when you had original werewolf movies, it was transitions that would fade from one to the other. You'd have a version where the makeup was only applied so much. Then they'd have the actor sit still. They'd put more on, and they would basically just fade from one shot to the next so it looked like it was growing in. And it was usually done in the dark and in shadows and maybe creative angles and lighting. American Werewolf... Rick Baker took the whole process, and between what they would do to the actor's face, they would even have like bladders, like balloons underneath the makeup, and they would inflate them under the makeup so you see things expanding underneath his face in real time and brightly lit. There's no hiding it now. It's right there, front and center, and they would have other, uh, uh, you'd call it a machine or whatever you want, where it wasn't a real head, but it looked just like it, and it would contort in a way that a head couldn't contort, and the way they cut it all together, it was just... Uh, 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 you just your your mouth is hanging open. You can't believe what you're seeing, and that yeah. really got a lot of guys thinking outside the box. That, I mean, that was a good start to think outside the box. It wasn't just a static makeup job. It in and of itself was a living, moving appliance on your face that changed the game in a lot of ways. And this is all in camera, no CGI at this point. It was all right there and done beautifully. And then you can almost see that corner after that. People are starting to, well, you know what else we could do? And off they went. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater as we are discussing makeup and costume today. Dave, I really enjoyed the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for a lot of different reasons. One of the things that I that I like is that they get into some of the nuances of 60s Hollywood and just Hollywood in general. And one of them that comes to mind was when Rick Dalton is talking about this character that he's going to play in the TV show that he guest stars in. And he describes to the, um, to the director of the episode how he doesn't necessarily like what they're doing 
with his character because he doesn't think people will be able to recognize him. And the director is telling him, that's the point. I don't want them thinking Rick Dalton from Bounty Law. I want them thinking about this character that you are playing within this. Plus, it's funny because then they get into like riffing on Western costumes a little bit, um, making it kind of fit a certain feel rather than being really authentic, a certain feel. I think there's a few different webs that we can branch off of with that. But the one that comes to mind there... Um, initially is what what Rick's concerned about. And and I think this is where costume feel started to change and makeup feel started to change a little bit with movies was that it became less about, oh, I recognize Cary Grant here. Oh, I recognize Grace Kelly here. And these people having a certain look. It became less about that and more about are you fitting your character. Here's a great example of that. One of the early method actors was Marlon Brando. Major method actor. Well, where does he take method to a whole new level and and includes a little bit of a different kind of makeup and costume design to it? The Godfather. They do a few different things there to change his look and make him truly become the Godfather. I mean, they, they do some different things with his face. They do a few different things with his overall look to change him into becoming Vito Corleone and becoming all of that when it came to age, when it came to appearance. He was going to take care of a lot of it when it came to his method acting that he did. But what came alongside of that? Putting him into character in that way as well with the makeup with the costume elements that they added in too. And I've heard two different things, and maybe they're one is true, maybe both is true. You know, he's got something in his mouth. And I've heard between his pack with cotton like you would get at the dentist. And another one being is that he's got an appliance almost like a retainer or something that kind of elongated his jaw a little more. A little more. It made him look like a bulldog is what they wanted him to look like. And uh or both. I I I've heard different things that maybe to some degree or two, but either way it's clear he does have something in his mouth to make his jaw much more elongated and give him that kind of a bulldog look that he could, as older as he might be, he could still pounce on you. But the best kind of what you, you were just kind of touching on it was disappearing into the character and not just in your mentality, but maybe you're not even recognizable. You know, Gary Oldman, there's a couple that come to mind yeah. with him. Yeah. For one, he looks a lot like Lee Harvey Oswald. And there's a reason that that might be the part, because he played that part in JFK and looked a lot like him. And they didn't need to do much. He played a couple different versions of Dracula. None of them look like Gary Oldman. He plays uh, Winston Churchill, you already talked about. Looks just like Winston Churchill. Uh, Mason Verger in Hannibal, where he's a disfigured victim of Hannibal Lecter. And he went into that movie uncredited. And nobody could really figure it out. This is when the internet was really kind of up and going. It was hard to figure out who it was. After the fact, people know it's him, but you can't tell who he is. And after a while, you kind of stop. Same way when you're watching Daniel Craig, who you know as James Bond, is now playing Foghorn Leghorn and Knives Out, and he's got a very pronounced accent. This is James Bond. You know it's fake, but if you do it right. Or just- Joe Bang in uh, Logan Lucky. Yes. With, with the hair and, and all that he's got going on there. But if you yeah. do it right, you forget that this is somebody trying hard not to look like somebody else, but actually becoming the character. And after a brief moment of what, what, You've, if it works between the costuming, between the makeup, between the performance of the actor, it all has to come together seamlessly. And if it's done right, you forget entirely who you're watching and you're much more engrossed in what you're watching. And that's what makes a movie work. You know you're sitting in a theater, preferably, or sitting at home, or sitting somewhere to watch something that now makes you feel the way it wants you to feel, whether you're supposed to be afraid or you're supposed to be tense. You know you're sitting on your living room couch and everything is okay. But if it's done right, it doesn't matter anymore. It propels you somewhere else. I think that is one of the most notable things that has changed about movies over the last 60 years. One of. There are many things, but one of them that I think has most notably changed is it, it's not any longer about recognizing who is playing the role and being drawn to the person who's playing that role. Nowadays, it, there's an appreciation for being shocked to realize that person is playing that role. Like, we seem to appreciate that 
eons, like eons ago, we didn't appreciate that in the same way. Um, now we appreciate it on a completely different level. Um, as far as wow, that they got into character in that manner, they have that much costume involved. It, it's 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 funny how much that has pivoted. I, I'd say even almost a full one eighty with how public opinion on that has changed and how production studios mindsets about that have changed and i think even the stars themselves i mean they they used to be about we've got to keep this certain image with these certain kind of performers now it's totally different in that way you know it's it's one thing it grabs a lot of attention when you have let's just call it what it is good looking people made through Hollywood magic to not look so good-looking. Charlize Theron comes to mind uh, in Monster, where she plays a serial killer, and she she's a good-looking woman. But not in this movie she's not. She's made to look much more like the real counterpart. I just watched not too long ago Valkyrie, which is a World War II movie with Tom Cruise as a member of the, of the Nazi party who's actually out to kill Hitler. And he's based on a real guy. And this guy was, a, was damaged in a bombing there's a shot with Tom Cruise where, through Hollywood makeup, he's lost one hand, he's lost most of the fingers, on the other hand, he's lost an eye, he's scarred, and it's done creatively. And a lot of it is CGI, uh, some of it is not, some of it is trickery, where they would actually have somebody with an amputated hand, uh, and they might we use him for close-ups and so forth. But it was done in such a way that if you do it right, you know Tom Cruise has got two hands and ten fingers and toes, but in the way they shoot this movie... He's not. You're watching him struggle trying to get dressed, basic things that you take for granted because you kind of you need those body parts to be able to do it. But to show him missing those and in a way that's convincing and to a point where you kind of forget that, well, that's pretty good the way they faked it, you're involved in the story and you're invested, then you know you're doing it right, whether it's through trickery, whether it's through makeup, even if it is CGI. But Basically, what we're talking about is fooling the audience to believe what they need you or want you to believe and doing it seamlessly, Hoof. That's the big part. Exactly. Another good uh, modern example. I I feel like superhero movies have really embraced this, or or some superhero movies especially, but one of the most notable ones over the last two decades or so, two different actresses performing this role, Mystique in X-Men. Major, major work to to get that that jumpsuit, or, or, and as well as all that all the painting that was involved as well. They're pretty much naked. I mean, <laughs> let's not let's not fool it around. Full body paint and some strategic appliance of some sort, whatever you want to call it. Special underwear, perhaps, but the rest of it here you are. Yeah, pretty amazing work to to put all of that together and and to create all of that into a. I don't know, I guess partial costume, but a lot of it makeup. I mean, depending on how you want to look at it with with all of that and, and and to be able to allow them to maintain the movement that they need for the the role of Mystique and and just how flexible of a character she is. Um here's another one. Aging people is always really interesting, Dave. When when people are able to be aged, look at Brad Pitt in the curious case of Benjamin Button. For example, um, the the ability to be able to age people. I already mentioned about Brando in uh, in The Godfather, and I mean adding those aging elements where you suddenly realize, wow, they uh, they just made this person look twenty, thirty, forty years older than what they really are, and it, it's kind of creepy. But at the same time, it's pretty astounding the way they're able to age them and maintain their character, uh, maintain. The, the features that make this person who they are in real life, but the things that they can do to age them that much. You know, it's funny you can look at, uh, maybe this is where we'll transition from makeup into more of a wardrobe and costuming, but you talk about hearing uh, people being aged or even de-aged via makeup. And of course, a lot of people yeah. like to de-age yeah. with, with CGI, but you could do it with wardrobe. Let's talk one where there's like barely no makeup involved in the de-aging process. It's an older movie from the 80s called Peggy Sue Got Married. Kathleen Turner basically goes back in time, but really what it is is a dream. She's in her mind. How do they make her look 20 years, 30 years, however it was, younger? A lot of it was the costuming and the wardrobe. There wasn't a major face cast done of her. And she is, you know, especially back then, a beautiful woman. I'm sure they did a couple of little tricks to hide wrinkles and so forth that she might have had early in the end of the movie. But generally, it's the costuming that she wore. 
And it was the way that she presented herself and a lot of that costume and a lot of the attitude coming through. If you act young, you almost look young. So which is why I tend to look like I'm 12. But it's also the way the performance was. But the wardrobe really made it work. And especially if you're going for a period piece, the movie starts present day, which would have been the mid-80s, I think, when they made it. And then they all of a sudden, they take you back to the 60s. And the wardrobe is so defined to that era and they nailed it. And they got it right between poodle skirts, which was maybe a little more 50s, um, but the kind of doo-wop bands that uh, Nicolas Cage was in. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie or not, but that's what made everybody. And Nicolas Cage, too, as he was just an up-and-coming star at that point and you know, starting to get a little bit of notice. It, Jim Carrey actually was in that movie. As part oh, of the really? Band. Oh, yeah. Huh. Uh, it was the way I'm a that it little was, familiar with the movie. Yeah, yeah, it was it was the way that that was done, and it wasn't any makeup effect or anything. It was performance, and it was the the wardrobe to really bring you back in time. Harrison Ford said once they asked him, "How important is wardrobe for you? Whether you're playing Han Solo or Indiana Jones or whatever." He said, "Absolutely imperative." And maybe it ties into what De Niro was saying about the paper money or the silk underwear. It's what I feel. And I'm trying to feel like somebody that's not me. And if the wardrobe helps, then that's good. Kind of makes you wonder if the wardrobe looks great, but is a pain in the butt to wear. Maybe that works for the Grinch, where you're supposed to be angry, but you're supposed to be cool and majestic, but you're really bent out of shape with this makeup and it's bothering you. And the wardrobe, maybe that is even a harder acting job because you have to act like the, the good witch of the North, but the makeup is killing you. I think the emphasis on wardrobe has always been extremely important and people have always looked at the wardrobe with somewhat of a fine-toothed comb and with with a real attention to detail on it but i think the importance of that has has never been greater because of the advent of the internet because people can turn around now and they can go on these these deep dive investigations on just how close the wardrobe is to whatever your time period is that you are trying to capture your movie in, especially if you are trying to be very rigid with it, if you are trying to be very specific to it. I I don't know to what degree I should say that the internet has been a, a major game changer on that, but it has been, I think, pretty important in underlining the significance of getting a detail like the wardrobe and, and capturing the the time that it's supposed to be from has become like that that detail has always been important I, I think the advent of the internet and the way that it allows everybody to be a critic and everybody to 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 comb through these details very closely uh, I, I think those things have really emphasized even greater you, you gotta dot your I's and cross your T's when it comes to putting together your your costume for a movie because it's always been important like you said I, I I thought that quote from Harrison Ford was a really good one it's always been very important maybe never more so than now because of the way that people are evaluating movies on on a more public scale and and the general public is evaluating movies on a public scale like never before you know it depends I think on how you look at these do you believe it and that it needs to be almost documentarian and that it absolutely needs to be the case for example you knew what people in the Old West wear. We see pictures of it. How come in the 1950s, they just don't look like that? They all got the vests on, and they they look like Howdy Doody in a lot of ways. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, you get to, there's a fun comedy movie called Rustler's Rhapsody, and one of the characters is talking about, now I was, was fond of the way they looked in the 60s. They all got to wear those rain jackets, like the dusters. And a lot of them yeah. did, you know, but they were very aware, you know, in the movie referring to what the Westerns were. They were very, it was kind of meta, so to speak. It's a comedy fun, yeah. worth looking up. Uh, but anyway, they started to look more, call it authentic. Once we get into the 60s, you start getting into more spaghetti Westerns by, by with, with uh, Sergio Leone and uh, Clint Eastwood. But they were starting to look, at least on screen, much more like the tin types, the actual pictures from the Old West looked like, for the most part, Versus the 50s. Well, why did the 50s even take that turn? Was it just a budget thing? Was it uh, they didn't have the material? Whatever it was. But even now, you might find something where somebody will show up as sort of an homage to the way they looked in the 50s, which maybe there were some people walking around in the Old West that looked like they did in 50s Westerns. But that's just not realistic when you look at the whole. I think tone has a big, big part in that. Because with some of the more serious tonal movies... They seem to be a little bit more 
serious in in what they did with the costumes with your with your run of the mill let's roll it out produce it print it send it to the to the screen movies uh, there's there are a lot of westerns that are like that even some that you could deem as being a little bit more serious from the 50s but even still i i think attention to a detail like that was not quite as as stringent they they just weren't really focused as much on that but you know with with Technicolor becoming more of a thing then when the 60s came around, color movies becoming more of a thing, and with with more of a serious tone to some of those those movies, I think that also played its own role. Although, I mean, th- there are maybe some other costume type of, of decisions that came with that. I mean, the poncho for the man with no name, I mean, that was a very specific item that I think they included in for him and his character. But again... Um, it seems with tone, there, there's a little bit of a commonality that can be made there. Yeah, I think this would be a good way to segue into Tarantino, who's well known to not necessarily follow what is established. You know, So look at Django, for example, Django Unchained. He's wearing some things that are probably logistic to the point and to the era, but then there's other accoutrements, let's just say, that get added. You know, you don't get stylistic sunglasses like that that were around back in the Old West, <laughs> but it worked for the character, and it says something for the character. If you see everybody's in some sort of uniform, and then the one rebel character is in uniform, but he's got some sort of an alteration or something different that stands him apart because he is a rebel. Would it have been allowed at the time? No, but it works for the character because visually it gives you the impression of what he is. Whether he's the rebel or maybe he's the wolf in sheep's clothing or whatever it is. So to have Django not exact, and we knew what people in the Old West looked like back then, but still you have people that are appreciating the wardrobe that was used in that movie, even if it's not historically accurate, because it tells a bit of that tale. If you think of a performance and a character as a pie, You've got a piece of that pie that's the performance, another piece that's this, and so on and so forth. And the wardrobe, whether it's accurate or not, tells you that one part about the character without anybody needing to say a word. You see, you recognize, you know, you get it. The yep. wardrobe's doing its job. Visual cues through wardrobe are are always really intriguing. Sometimes you have to mine a little bit deeper for them. Sometimes you have to maybe think a little bit more about it. Like, one example that I have that I... I've read this before. I don't know if it's actually confirmed or not, but Anakin Skywalker, with the robes that they chose for him when he became a Jedi, they went with darker robes than than most others. And leather to kind of signify a little bit of the transformation that was to come later with his character. And they did it in a very subtle visual sense but you you put him alongside Obi-Wan Kenobi there's there's a very distinct difference there uh between the two of them and what they're wearing but i read that it was to signify a little bit of what was to come with him and his character and the fact that he was going to be somebody who was towing the line a little bit and eventually would cross the line to the dark side you know in you talk about dramatic needs you can even do the same with comedic needs you know the role of cosmo kramer on seinfeld even though we're not talking movies here but just to get the point across everything that michael richards wore as kramer was vintage for one just show that he hadn't probably left the house enough to actually go and update his wardrobe in forever <laughs> but everything was at least a size or two too big for him which also made him look very chillaxed very relaxed and didn't really care so between the wardrobe when you first saw him you probably in your life knew somebody that was not too far from him that was just off the beaten path, didn't care about the rest of the world and how he was supposed to be and was supposed to look. It really says a lot about him. And it became, you know, to some degree for some folks, its own fashionista, a lot of things in vintage started to pick up around yep. that time. People wanted to kind of emulate what they saw. That calls to mind um, another great 90s example when it comes to costume and how about not only a transformation outside of the movie to put this person in character but even within the movie it's fun to watch the transformation becoming refined and i'm talking about mrs doubtfire oh yeah and you you watch the transformation taking place within the movie too <laughs> where he's trying to figure out what the best look is going to be for Mrs. Doubtfire, and you watch this play out until finally you land on this one final appearance that that Robin Williams' character lands on, where he he not only 
finds something that that he thinks will suit him best, but also is one that he can change into and out of. And it shows a little bit of that too. A little meta as well, because you, you watch that transformation take place even within the movie. Well, just watching him anyway, uh, whether it's a stand-up character, the voices that he'll employ. And even now and again, boy, I miss him. It's like an old uncle that you never met, but you sure love. Uh, he might slip into Mrs. Doubtfire on stage, and it comes out of nowhere, or any other voice that he'll pull. He'll have a conversation with his own yeah. son, and it's just him. And you just it, it's just the way that you slip in and out of that when you get such a chameleon character like that. Jim Carrey can do that, and not a lot of others can. I've seen, I think, uh, we mentioned it before, that Gary Oldman is one of those guys. I watched him do an interview with somebody. He just slipped into some character immediately. Yeah. Unsettlingly so. Comedy has has sort of opened the door on that in a whole new way because of the way that people will play multiple roles. Peter Sellers was famous for that back in the 60s. I mean, I, I think of Dr. Strangelove and the fact that he plays three different roles within that movie as playing group captain Lionel Mandrake where he's a British officer who's who's very uptight. Then he's playing um, the president in, in that movie where he's, he's this um, just kind of um, a, a guy who's a little bit out of his depth, um, and is trying to keep everybody keep everybody calm. Then he's also playing um, Doctor Strangelove himself, who's this this crazy ex German, this ex Nazi essentially. Um, or I guess, well, I guess he was no, affected. Right. So, they recruited a lot of German scientists. Well, yeah, for the so effort. Yeah. ex ex German scientists. I don't I don't think he was one of the Nazis. He would have been in trouble then. But anyway. Um, they so he's doing these three different roles that are just crazy and and he did a lot of that in some of his movies. Eddie Murphy, a guy oh, yeah. just oh, talk about playing tons of roles. Oh my word! Coming to America, it's practically all him and Arsenio Hall in the whole movie. I mean they they've got them in so many different roles where you've got to kind of keep your head on a swivel and go, is that Eddie Murphy who I just saw? Is that Eddie Murphy who I just saw? Is that Arsenio Hall who I just saw? You, you've got to keep yourself locked in when you're watching an Eddie Murphy movie because, I mean, talk about costume transformation. I mean, my gosh, it, it's everywhere. Tyler Perry, same thing with, with playing Medea. I mean, you, you've got to keep your head on a swivel and go, I am not watching who I think I am watching right now. So there's an actor that's out there. I guess we'll morph back into makeup just a little bit and some of the better performers at it. There's a guy that you probably don't know, but you know his work. And he's generally the man in the suit is one of his nicknames. His name is Toby Jones. And rarely will you ever see him doing a role, usually as a cameo, where he is just himself, more or less. But he's got unusual body proportions. He's a real tall, skinny guy in real life. And there's nothing, you know, it looks like a normal guy other than he's, you know, it looks like he's really good at basketball. But he's played a lot of these roles. Uh, creature in the Water, he was the creature. He was in Pan's Labyrinth. Right now you can see him a lot in Star Trek. Discovery is uh, Maru, uh, Saru, rather. Um, he, because of what he is as a general person, you can build on that and you can make him look bigger. And you can almost hide him inside the wardrobe in such a way, or even the makeup job, in such a way that there's no way a human can do what he can do. Um, It's disturbing. In fact, what a lot of people remember him as is in the movie Seven, there's the one guy that is left to starve to death, and he just looks like he's skeletal and he's gone and there's nothing there. It was actually him. They They got him so skinny, they actually had to build out from him to make him look more sunk in. Because it just looked so artificial, but it was absolutely, in a lot of ways, real because of the kind of just unusual body shape and morph. I don't know how to describe it, but it's got so much ability. He's a, he's a human sandcastle is what he is. You can make <laughs> him into whatever you need him to be. And it's to the point where there's no way you'd believe it wasn't a mannequin or it wasn't a person uh, that had some severe issue of some sort. But take it all away. He looks as normal as anybody else. It just worked the way that they did it. And uh, he's one of those magic guys that, you know, probably any movie with a monster in a suit or something, there's a good chance it might have been him and done so convincingly that it's it's really interesting. It really interests me how to how the the extent to which these actors will go to get into their role has changed, I think, Dave. You know, I I think of um 
in V for Vendetta as Natalie Portman's character is getting her head shaved or her hair shaved. Um, you know, you think of something like that and you go, yeah, she actually got her haircut for the movie. She actually got her haircut there in, in that spot. I mean, you think of Tom Hardy um, bulking up to become Bane for The Dark Knight Rises and, and all that he underwent physically to, Christian to get Bale into that role. Looking just gaunt and way too thin. I in which right role? before he did Batman too. Right. So he lost which, it all, which, and then he had to add, add it all back, which and then some. Crazy. What role was that that he had oh, done that for? Oh, oh, I'm having because a because I know the, I know the movie that you're thinking of. Yeah. Give me three. Give me three because the computers are down. I can't look it up, but I know I know the movie. I've seen it, and it's on the tip of my brain, and I can't say what it is. But he was. I mean, he he's a method actor, most definitely. He radically transformed his body. What was the role of the movie? I'm close. He's, he's looking it up it here. Hang he on. loses all this weight to the point where he was dangerously thin. And the next movie he takes as Batman begins. Not only does he have to get the weight back, now he's got to put on muscle and look the part of a crime-fighting superhero. So you go from way down to way up. Not unlike Tom Hanks, who really did it for Castaway. He's been overweight for some other movies too. Oh, Christian yeah. Bale. So the Machinist. The yeah yeah. Well, even Tom Tom Hanks. They filmed the first part of Castaway where he's a little overweight. You know, he got to get pizzas and milkshakes and put on the weight. They filmed the first part, and then they took a break. In fact, Robert Zemeckis, who directed both this movie and then the um, uh, What Lies Beneath, they stopped on Castaway, did a whole other movie, What Lies Beneath, and then they picked up the second part of Castaway so that Tom Hanks could, A, grow a long, scraggly beard and lose all this weight, and you'd see Tom Hanks show up on The Tonight Show or something looking like a homeless guy because he's doing it for real. And then they filmed the second part of Castaway where he's all skinny and he doesn't have a haircut and all that was done legitimately. It's amazing how they make things like that work yeah. and how the commitment is that people will do it, whether they're wearing an appliance as a wardrobe or on their face. It's really uncomfortable. Do you think Tom Hanks didn't want to eat anymore for you know however many months and look like that? You know, it's just but that's what you do for the role when you really commit to it. It's amazing what some people will do, and it is amazing how much that has changed and to the extent that it has come to these days where people will will do things like that again. I I think that that's one of the more subtle and yet at the same time it's not subtle because we're watching it right in front of us changes that has happened over the last 60 years of movies is just to what extent people will will shake things up in that regard in order to be in in certain roles i mean gone are the days of of somebody like robert redford not wanting to get his hair trimmed because of the the certain the certain look that he had really carved out for himself i mean people people today who are on the big screen they are they are willing to go to pretty remarkable lengths sometimes to get into their role um, and to take on their character that they have for that role, including the costumes and makeup involved with it. Yeah, I think with the exception of Jeremiah Johnson, unless I'm mistaken, he generally looks the same from movie to movie. Maybe he's got a mustache, maybe he doesn't have a mustache, but he generally looks the same. I remember even reading, and there was a role, I think... Was that in the way we were, where he didn't want to get his hair cut when he was in a when he was playing a military type of position within the movie? He did not want to get his hair cut for for that role or for that part of the role, even though he was told you kind of need to if you want to fit this. And he's like, "No, I don't want to." Um, but yeah, Jeremiah Johnson. That's that's the most notable. But that's more more the beard you know, it's than just, anything. It's just scruff everything. He just looks yeah. like cousin it. But you know, when you live in the woods, that's what you get. But then there are some <laughs> that they just they want to be that movie star. They want to be recognizable. So and so starring as, and they look the same every time. But every now and again, you're going to have somebody that they look absolutely stark different. And Christian Bane. Christian Bale, Christian Bale, sorry, <laughs> little little Batman sneaking in, yeah, is one of those guys. He looks generally the same, but then you look at almost even what's behind the eyes, whether it's Patrick Bateman in, in American Psycho, whether it's the fighter and he's the corner man brother. It's he is very very different on the outside and the inside from role to role. Doesn't care about the movie star thing for him. It's all about the character. I mentioned Tom Hardy a little bit earlier. I think he's another guy who who does a bit of that, whether it was in Star yeah. Trek Nemesis or 
put him in um, the Revenant, him and Leonardo DiCaprio, I mean, you're automatically going to look quite different when you are stuck outside in freezing cold conditions like they were. But there was a lot of work done to get those guys looking like true frontiersmen who were just pushing the limits on on themselves. I mean, in DiCaprio's case, I mean, holy cow, that was most definitely happening with him uh, with with all that he had to go through um, within the course of of that story. Yeah, Yeah. and won the Oscar for it. But for both of them, I mean, boy, talk about immersing yourself in your role. There was a lot of that in that movie. Yeah, there are some folks that really take it seriously. I I think you almost have to, at this point, bring into the conversation uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. This is a guy that totally commits, whether he's going around as Borat or right now he's up for an Oscar – it, not just for his roles with Borat, not so much for the performance, but also playing Abby Hoffman in The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, he's nominated for an Oscar right now. And he just shows up basically as himself. You know, Abby Hoffman had a look, so they got, you know, the wild hair with, with Borat. As well, I called him Borat. I'm sorry. Sasha Baron Cohen. But, you know, when he's just playing a part and he's just doing the part, whether it's nonsensical, comedic, what am I watching? Versus something outright serious. I mean, not that Abby Hoffman didn't know how to throw a zinger in a joke, but it's a serious role. And he nails them both. And it's funny that they both came out in the same year. There is a similarity in the look. If you're starting to pay attention, you realize that's not, you know, that's not Abby Hoffman on this courtroom witness stand. That's Borat. Minus the accent and the mustache, but yeah, you're right. But the man commits, and he makes it work. And when you have a commitment in a role like that, and you have whatever wardrobe goes along with it, like he's wearing a one-man, a one-piece mankini in Borat, if you remember that wardrobe shot. Somebody tells me you didn't see Borat. No. Basically, it's a one-piece bathing suit that goes right from, it's like a Speedo that comes up all the way in straps over the shoulders so basically, you're almost naked. It's like a man thong that goes all the way up, including bra straps. Are you starting to see why I haven't watched that movie? <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. But who would want to wear that? For the role, he did it. So it just it commits. And so when, you, when you'll have somebody that'll commit to a performance, to a makeup job like that, he's going to wear what? And then you believe it. And that's part of the kick. When you have somebody that's going to do the role because they want the Oscar, but they don't commit to it, you can you can kind of get the idea that this isn't it this isn't working. You need to make it work. It all needs to come together. You can't fight what you're given. You can't fight the costume. You can't fight the the, the makeup. You need to make it work. I'm gonna work to banish that thought from my mind that that you just gave me of that. Now I'm gonna find it on costume. Google Image. Who check no, this out? No, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna move on from that. Um, I, I am pleased that in a in a day and time of, of so much CGI that that has not removed the importance of good costume and makeup work. And it was it's been good that that over the years the the Academy Awards and just different award shows in general have continued to recognize the the work that is done in that regard because again it is one of those things that we have come to I think more or less expect you know if you're watching a period film you're expecting period costumes well if it's like Victorian era my gosh the extent to which they have to go to get the costume right I mean that's a lot of work but I appreciate then that there that there's still that attention to detail that is is so strongly taken there's other times where, like we say, it's not exactly historically accurate. Braveheart, great movie. They were in kilts like you'd expect ancient Scotsmen to wear. Problem was that in the time of William Wallace, they kind of weren't back then. But, you know, in a way, from a modern audience, if you were watching an ancient Scottish movie and they're not in kilts, we're so ingrained in expecting it that it would become its own problem. And so while it's a great movie and there's a lot of liberties taken with diff- with a lot of the storylines, it's based on reality, but it takes such a left turn, you really can't look at it as accurate. And that includes the wardrobe. William Wallace in his era wasn't wearing a kilt. Didn't happen. So, But if it, if it didn't happen in the movie, you'd be almost wondering aloud, why aren't they wearing kilts? Shouldn't they be wearing kilts? Shouldn't they be wrapped up in their tartan? But... But what it did from a movie standpoint is that it worked. It doesn't matter that Braveheart never actually, let alone met this particular king, but certainly didn't father what would have been an heir to that throne. You know, it didn't happen in real life, but it made for a great movie. 
didn't matter that kilts weren't around at that point in history, but it made for a good, you know, visual aesthetic that you work that worked Visually for the movie. Recognizable. Yeah. Exactly. And that's kind of where things kick in too. It's not that it has to be true to history, it's that it has to be true to the character. It has to be true to the part, it has to be true to what you're trying to get across. Uh, it doesn't matter that Hitler didn't get shot in a movie theater, but it worked for the movie. So if you're going to come up with something along those lines, whether it's a makeup look, whether it's a wardrobe choice, if it works for if it works for the story and for the tone and for the character and all of this, then it does its job and it works. Either you're going to do it completely historically accurate to the point where somebody pointed out that the stars in when the Titanic sinks, in the sinking of the Titanic, don't actually match up to what the sky pattern would have been on the night the Titanic sunk in 1812. So they, I said 1812, 1912. So they fixed it. And it doesn't really matter unless you are an astrologist who somehow just can summon up knowledge like that, which is crazy. Um, it doesn't matter. I believe that they sunk on a cold night. Looks like a cold night to me. It works for me. I don't even care if they were real constellations. It works for me. But some people want to be completely accurate, and that's awesome, where the point is the stitching has to be in such a certain way that they can't do without it. Yes, there's a certain needle that can only do this, and there's only one of them. So the costume director would take it home with them every night to make sure nothing happened to the needle because otherwise, they, Lord forbid, they, I'm not even making that up. That's a true story that I remember picking up down the line somewhere. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. It gets, it gets real particular. And the artsmanship and the craftsmanship, so long as it works for what you're going to see, you go, accurate or not accurate. It sure is an art, though, most definitely. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, we like to think that this is something of an art. At least sometimes there's an art to what we do is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater as we talk costumes and makeup today. Anything else, Dave, before we wrap it up? I I think we've, I I mean, one of the things that I would encourage the listeners to do is, you know, just do a Google search of some of the best makeup jobs in film or best costume work in film. I mean, there's, there's some cool visual stuff that you'll come across that we got some good ideas from for, for today's episode. It jogged my memory a little bit on a few things, but all you have to do is a simple search, and you'll get some really tremendous visuals that come up. Absolutely. Uh, realizing and appreciating the craftsmanship that goes into this work. Um, there are such examples of bad wardrobe. There are such examples of bad makeup. And then you see the good ones, and you realize, wow, this isn't just slapping something onto something somewhere. And yet also, when you look at movies, you have to be appreciative of the time that they came out and what the what the limitations were and how far they were able to go. And where CGI comes into play even now, I'll give you an example. You look at some of the Marvel movies, you have uh, Paul Bettany as Vision in many of those movies, earlier yeah. the role of Jarvis. A lot of what you see in his face on the final product was shot in camera, but not all of it. In fact, if you look at a lot of the behind-the-scenes things, you'll see marks on his face so that the CGI will know how his face is positioned and, and changing and altering and so forth so that the CGI can be altered as well. Some characters don't have that. They are completely in camera. But to appreciate the work that goes in and when CGI is applied, how seamlessly it is. When you see Jar Jar Binks and you know that it's actually Ahmed Best with a device above his head, but he's really there. He's really there. The whole costume is the real deal. It's just the head that's not. But it looks out of phase. It looked good for what it was, but it looked out of phase. And it was as advanced as it could be 20-some years ago. God, that was 20-some years ago. It makes me feel old. Sorry, Dave. I know. You were there, too. Yeah, I was. And it's just it, you appreciate the craftsmanship when it works and how far they're able to stretch it and make things go and make things work. And when you're talking camera and you're talking makeup and you're talking wardrobe and it's all in camera, they're not faking it. It's really there. And when they really are pushing those boundaries, you have to appreciate the work that goes into that. And that it takes hours. I mean, many hours in some cases oh, yeah. to make some of these costumes happen. I read a few stories about how people would have to get up at like 2 a.m. to get into costume for some of the X-Men type of roles that, that got created. Think about all the work that, that went into Nicholas Holt as Beast, you know, oh, and, yeah. and all the. J- there's just one example. Um, some crazy, crazy good costume work and design required, and crazy good makeup work 
and design required to be able to make all of that happen. It's going to be a way to st- – I mean, this morning I didn't get coffee, so I'm feeling slightly off. But here's Nicholas Holt, for example, that has to get up at, let's say, 2 in the morning and sit in the makeup chair and then maybe fall half asleep while people are adjusting and gluing and shaving and tweaking and painting. And and then when the day is over and you're, God, I can't wait to get this off, you can't just tear it off. No. That's a few more hours to do it. The last night of the last show of the last take, then it's almost a ritual for people to just rip that stuff off and throw it away and hope you don't need reshoots. You're probably praying that you can get through as many scenes as possible in one given day because it's like it's one less day of having to wear all of this, having to do all of this. But I think appreciating that side of the craft is really important. If you're you're a fan of movies, it's important to appreciate that because, man, that's a lot of work that's required to get them to that point. To those that have pioneered the way, the Stan Winstons of the world, the Rick Bakers, the Rob Bottines, um, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say I'm not a king on understanding the wardrobe but I mean, there's a lot of great wardrobe people that really make things work and I wish I was more versed on your names and I apologize but for those of you that have been and those of you that aspire to be and follow in those footsteps and push those boundaries and the capacity for what we do uh, I can't tell you the admiration I have and um, whether I recognize the names or not I certainly always appreciate the work and uh, for those of you that have really made it easier to have an imagination and my mind has to work less hard because you have picked up that gap, uh, wow, what, a, what an amazing world. When you watch Hollywood, boy, how do they do the things they do? That's one of the big things. And I'm sure you appreciate it a little bit extra as a guy who especially loves sci-fi and yeah. who sees a lot of this very regularly in the sci-fi that you watch. Yeah. I mean, and it's always something that's generally believable, even if it's something so bizarre, like eyeballs on the side of the head. They make it work, and it's believable enough that, okay, they found a way. It's believable enough. It looks to me like it's real. And I always give credence to the man in the suit with an actual mask that works versus it's a guy with makeup on his face, but it's all CGI because it looks CGI. Mm-hmm. But they're getting better at that. You know, you know, it, It's going to be interesting to see the way they make things work. When you see, okay, now this is new enough that I have to say spoiler alert here, but we're talking about the last season of Mandalorian. Have you seen this yet? Are you aware of where I'm about to go with this? From the last season. <sighs> okay, maybe I shouldn't say this. Let's just say that there's... Um, an effect done that works. Oh, yes, with the CGI. Yes. Yep. So you're aware where I'm going? Yes, I am. All right. Well, a second spoiler alert. If you haven't seen The Mandalorian, uh, the second season, particularly the last episode, you are being warned now, three, two, one, that Luke Skywalker returns. Yes. And they did have Mark Hamill help out, but this is Mark Hamill era Return of the Jedi. He doesn't look like that anymore. So his face is done much like... Uh, um, uh, Governor Tarkin was in Ro- in Rogue One, where it's a CGI face that's made to look like Mark Hamill from Return of the Jedi era, um, and it works. It really, really does. Um, and to make something like that, you certainly couldn't have Mark Hamill on set in makeup trying to look like Return of the Jedi Mark Hamill anymore. It wouldn't work, even with de aging. Even with de aging, it just yeah. it wouldn't work. It had to be done with CGI. So you know, Hamill's involved, but his face is pretty much CGI'd. It yeah. works. It looks good, but you can also tell that it's CGI. Yeah. You know, a lot of fans think that Sebastian Stan really looks, even without makeup, a lot like Mark Hamill. Get him to do the role, just lip sync it, so to speak, and have Mark Hamill voice it. That might be mm. interesting, too. Anyway, interesting. to make it work and to make things like that work, boy, that was just a fanboy's. <gasps> if you can make that kind of unnatural sound come out of an audience member, you've done something right. You've done pretty tremendous work, and a lot of these have in, in this case, yes. All right, that'll about do it for today. Uh, this is one that we've had in mind for, for a couple of episodes now, so it was fun to get to explore it a little bit more because, again, it's unsung, and yet we see it right in front of us. It shouldn't be that unsung, the work that goes on with makeup and costume. It's almost a magic trick when it's done right. It is. You almost look yeah. at something and, whoa, I, I, wow, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Now you see me. Now you see me as something completely different. Oh, it's amazing to see yeah. how those transformations work. All right. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.